Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Francis Farmer Show, uh, the official podcast of SeattleScreenScene.com. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm sitting in a closet, um, and across the way, down in Tacoma Way, uh, is my good friend, but even better villain, Sean Gilman. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing okay. He's doing okay. Um, this time on the show, tying in with the local release of Cemetery of Splendor, the latest film from a Picha Pung where it's ethical, we're going to talk about uh, that director's first film, uh, Mysterious Object at Noon from 2000. Tying in with that in a roundabout way uh, is Gates of the Night, a 1946 French film from Marcel Carnet. And the tenuous link between them is uh, The Exquisite Corpse, which is the uh, kind of the surrealist parlor game that We're Ethical used uh, as a springboard for the plot of Mysterious Object at Noon, or at least the conception of Mysterious Object at Noon. Um, and Carnet's longtime collaborator, uh, you, you say the French name there, Sean. Jacques Prévert. Jacques Prévert uh, was involved, It was one of the first people to play around with that goofy little game there. And we'll, we'll explain the exquisite corpse, I think, a little bit once we get into uh, our discussion of Mysterious Object at Noon. But, yeah. um, so there's that. In addition, there's more, if you can believe it. Uh, we are also going to be talking about our essential Weirdest Ethical film. Uh, we're going to talk about what Mike's been watching. And Mike's only been watching one thing, and it's Terrence Malick's Night of Cups. So just uh, over yeah. and over and over again. Just, on a loop. Yep. That's right. I took oh, two weeks of vacation from work and just mainline it, mainline it, Terry, right into my veins. Um, and uh, astute listeners to the show will, will note that it only took one episode of the new format for us to change our mind about playing uh, original music and, and not worrying about copyright. So we're playing a bunch of, of music from Weirdest Ethical Films today. Uh, hey, hey, hey it, it's fair use. We're talking about him. This is an act of film criticism. Okay. Whatever you say, Your Honor. Um, so there's that. We, we, we started with uh, his prelude that he uses um, for screenings of his films. Uh, and that's that. It's a it's a little short film he made called Anthem that was kind of designed to play in front of movies as a a purification thing. Something a lot better than playing your national anthem. You get to play crazy Thai pop music. That's right. And the the anthem uh, the, there's a scene in Cemetery of Splendor where they have where they go to the movies and uh, the anthem is missing. Yes. <laughs> uh, so anyway, without further ado, uh, I think it's time to get this Weirdest Ethical party started. Um, so here's a clip from Mysterious Object at Noon. อุบัติเหตุในคืนนั้นทําให้เขาคร่ําครวญทวินหาชมงามยามราตรีไม่เป็นอังกฤษไม่เป็นอนอกการงานไม่อยากทําเธอหลบลี้เร้นกายหายไ
ธอลืมคืนนั้นได้หรือเขาไม่ยอมพ่ายแพ้แกเกมชะตาค้นหาอย่างพลิกผนิดเมื่อเผชิญหน้าแต่อย่างจับเขาทับบ้าเธอกำลังจะแต่งงานกับชายคนใหม่เขาบอกตัวเองว่ายอมไม่ได้เธอจำเขาได้และจำเหตุการณ์คืนนั้นได้เขาพยายามแก้ไขปัญหาเพื่อช่วงชิงเธอมาเป็นกรรมสิทธิ์แต่เพียงผู้เดียวแต่ยิ่งแก่เรื่องก็ยิ่งยุ่งพรุ่งนี้ฉันจะรักคุณดัชนีคลิปจาก Mysterious Object at Noon อาพิชิตพังเวอร์เซธกัลส์เดบิวต์ฟิล์มของ2000เดอะเดอะฟิล์มที่เราพูดถึงในอินทรีย์คือบาสต์ในคอนเซปต์ของเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียกว่าเกมที่เรียก Covers it up except for a line of it, and then another person takes over without knowing what the other half of the picture is, creating this, you know, blended but you know, surreal kind of uh, image. And uh, where Sethka was uh, inspired by this, he he saw um, uh, an exqu exquisite corpse drawing uh, college. Or an art art school, and uh, it gave him the idea to to try and do this in a cinematic way. So what he did uh, was, with very little money, over the course of three years, he went through kind of rural Thailand, um, interviewing people, um, and he started with one person, and he had her start a story, just start making something up, uh, and when she got to an end point, he 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 took that, went to another small village, or you know. Hard to find place. Uh, told everybody what what he you know played the the clips of the story, and then had them take it from there. And so he's got this narrative that's created haphazardly by you know uh, just random people. And so he's got that, and then he films it. He 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 you know does a dramatic you know. Uh, Reenactment. Re reenactment of, I guess, the uh, story in question, and as as like a game of telephone or 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 you know something along those lines, you know it it moves into some unexpected territory. Um, it starts out fairly uh, straightforward. There's a teacher who's teaching a, a crippled boy uh, who is uh, confined to his house. He's never been outside, and She she you know is showing him pictures of what the world is like and stuff, um, and then she goes into another room and she passes out, and out of her dress falls a little uh, mysterious object and turns into like this alien boy, who then takes over her body and all these kinds of things happen. We don't need to really go into the plot of it basically, um, but this movie is really interesting to me because. All the hallmarks of later w e r e s ethical stuff, at least the the stuff that I've seen, and you've I think seen everything now. Is that right, Sean? Uh, there there are some of the shorts that I that I haven't seen. I watched I watched pretty much everything I could get my hands on in the last week. So it's, been, it's been a very surreal week for me. 
Yes. Uh, but, all, you know, all of the stuff that's in his later films up to Cemetery of Splendor, a lot of it is, is you know, the DNA can be found within this movie. Um, and it's a really interesting concept. And what, what happens with it is it becomes less about the narrative and it becomes more about these people, you know, these villagers and, um, you know, his countrymen and stuff. Uh, and, and this port, you know, his, him capturing, um, rural life and, uh, the lives of people that, you know, maybe don't normally get a say, um, you know, he goes to interesting places. Like he goes to a school for the deaf, has two deaf girls, you know, uh, sign, what what the next part of the story he goes to a little you know school and stuff and it gives you this really great conception of just like community and 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 it i don't know it, there's there's this pride in all of that and seeing these people you know some of them are a little tentative at first when telling the story and then they get into it there's a little boy um who is a little nervous and he kind of whispers something to his friend and his friend kind of eggs him on and then he kind of rolls with it. And it, it, you know, it's, it's a really great portrait of, of, uh, people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Weirdly, the, the film that it reminded me of the most is not any of his later works. It's actually, uh, uh, Frederick Wiseman's films, especially, uh, uh, his latest uh, in Jackson Heights, which is uh, just kind of a, a documentary about a community, and it, it goes through and it just has a series of of long scenes with individuals in that community uh, talking amongst themselves. And in the same way, uh, this movie is kind of a portrait of Thailand, uh, circa the mid nineteen nineties. Is there a UFO landing outside your house? Yeah, the uh, planes fly directly like overhead. Okay, <laughs> over our house. So that's yeah, that's what you're hearing. Yeah, it's uh, the mysterious object has arrived finally. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 this uh, it's the story that's being made up, uh, that's being reenacted in the film, and it's also uh, the documentary of the people telling the story that is going to be reenacted. But also throughout the film, maybe half of the film is just documentary scenes of life in in Thailand, and it's it's interesting how this this meshes this kind of uh, verite documentary with a surrealist narrative going on top of it, and the interplay between the two, and the way that we construct narratives out of like little bits of documentary. Are uh, it seemed to me akin to the way that they construct narrative out of little bits of the story that had come previously. Like they're all kind of incomplete. They're all kind of of weird. Yeah, and and they're weirder as a collective whole. You know, as the whole, mm-hmm. it becomes something much much grander and uh, odd and kind of beautiful um, when it's when all of those elements are kind of combined. Um, it's really, it's great. And, um, yeah, well, I I took it, I took it as kind of like a a warning of like the limits of ethnographic documentaries because 
the, because they're showing us only little snippets of the story as opposed to in the same way that the, the, the people in the film are only getting little snippets of the narrative and then they're going off of that to figure out what the story is about and then continue it. In the same way when we watch like a, a, a Wiseman documentary, uh, we're only getting like little snippets of the people's lives, but we're creating this narrative out of to explain like what a community or an organization like the one that like a Wiseman is filming is really like. Um, and kind of reminds me that it's it's very surreal that we take a, a small part and then create an explanation for the whole out of the tiny glimpse that we're seeing. And where Sethical kind of reinforces that when he lets the camera roll past the end of scenes, both in like the dramatic reenactments and when uh, people are just talking to to the camera and in relating their version of the story. Uh, there'll be like, like there's, there's one, uh, long take where, where, you know, the people start talking and he's like, no, we have to do that again. And, and where is ethical himself, like walks out on screens, like we can remove that light. And he goes and starts taking the light down and like the actors like get the script and like rehearsing their lines. And, uh, it's just kind of, kind of breaking down the, the apparatus that surrounds the, the narrative building. Well, and that's and and the, that moment in particular is really exhilarating because, as 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 viewers of film too, we like you said, going off of this constructing narrative kind of thing, where we when we're watching the movie, our our brains are kind of compartmentalizing for the first half of it, where we're like, okay, these are the people that are telling the story. This is the story being enacted, and when when you're watching the story being enacted, you're taking it like a a fictional story but you you know as as with any movie you kind of get wrapped up in in the performances of the characters and the way it's shot and all of these things so when he does break that spell and they just go back to being regular people in between uh performance mm -hmm. uh it's it's a really uh jarring uh and an exhilarating uh, effect that 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 comes out of that. I love that. That might be my favorite scene in the movies where he he calls cut, and then that kid is like, uh, you know, are we done? Can I get my KFC chicken? Like, right. <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm sick of acting. You know, and then the kid in the wheelchair gets up and starts walking around, and you know. And you, you know you that assume... you know that's totally how Weir Ethical is paying these act these kid actors, right? He's paying them in chicken. Yeah, no, <laughs> he doesn't have I, a budget know... for anything else. Uh, I watched the DVD uh, and there's a really cool uh, short interview with him okay. um, after afterward. Uh, it's maybe like a five minute thing where he kind of talks about how he got into film and became becoming a filmmaker and then his process with this movie. And yeah, he he says I had zero money. I mean, this is shot on 16 millimeter um, over the course of several years with, you know, a different crew each time because he could he couldn't pay anybody. He put an ad in the paper and said, you know, uh, no, no experience needed. Uh, I'll pay for your lunch, basically. And he got yeah, these people. And, yeah, he, he was like 25 years old when he started. Yeah. Um, and and he he mentions actually in that interview and, and I didn't I, I, I didn't consciously note it during the, the watching the film, but he talks about how the the film is also a documentary of just where his head was at over the course of those three years and he says that when he watches it the beginning is a lot quicker like there's a lot more editing there's a lot it's a lot more judicious in, in what's going on and then like you said uh he gets into more languid 
shots and he he holds shots longer as the movie goes on and that's because he kind of just got bored with the narrative like <laughs> and he got more interested in just location and what was yeah, going you, on you can definitely see like the 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 game itself take be, takes an increasingly smaller uh takes up an increasingly smaller part of the film as as it goes along uh which is which is really interesting that that yeah. he would that he would say that because I mean obviously in his in his later films the the narratives are very minimal. Yes, he he he's known for his you know just the 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 room to breathe uh, yeah. that that takes place on screen and and it's hypnotic and it's magical and it, it's I mean there there are moments in uh, all of his movies that. Nothing is happening, but you're just kind of transfixed by the imagery and the the location and you know all of that kind of stuff. And uh, like I said, that the DNA is is coming out from the very beginning here with uh, this film. Yeah, there's there's a couple there's a couple of scenes that look that that very specifically look forward to to future films. Um, in Syndromes in the Century, uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. Uh, there's the there's an opening scene. Between between two actors and they're having a conversation, and as the scene ends, they they get up and walk out of the room, and the camera just kind of uh, camera stays in the room and, and kind of zooms forward to look out at this landscape. It's like this green uh, uh, hillside with like woods in the distance, uh, and but the soundtrack follows the actors as they're walking down the hall and they're like talking amongst themselves in character. And then they stop being in character and just start talking among themselves as actors because they, they think the scene is over. But Whereas Ethical is still recording the sound, so he just keeps playing the audio of the actors chatting amongst themselves. And it's the only time in the movie that he that he breaks the, the fourth wall like that, but it's, it's very similar to what he does in Mysterious Object. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another scene in this film where... Uh, 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 an old man and his daughter are talking to a doctor, and uh, there are there are doctor scenes in all of Where Ethical's films. His his parents were doctors, and I, it looks like the same actress to me. I, I'm not sure, but it looks like the same actress who plays the doctor in the beginning of Blissfully Yours, and this this patient, the 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 old man with the hearing aid, uh, will go see. I think it's her. I think it's in Blissfully Yours. I'm not sure because I watch them all in a week and they blend together. Uh, but uh, in Mysterious Object, she tells him to get a hearing aid. And then in the later film, he's complaining that his hearing aid doesn't work because his, his daughter broke it. Mm. So it's, it's a literal continuation of a scene from Mysterious Object with the same characters just later in time. That's, that's interesting. That's cool. Um, but I don't I, I don't know if that scene is scripted in Mysterious Object or if it's a documentary scene because it doesn't have anything to do with the the parlor game narrative. I don't know right. where it came from, but those characters return. <laughs> That's just a, probably another fun little you know tidbit that he you know I don't know it probably gives him pleasure somehow or maybe he likes those actors and <laughs> decided yeah I don't, yeah um, and what and going back to the 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 construction of that of that narrative in this movie is that um they're the little tidbits that characters that uh sorry that people that are telling the story bring up um that are really interesting little um 
I don't know. They 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 tease you with these with these really great little things. Uh, where speaking of that doctor scene where she's talking about the mark on her neck, you know, that appears and stuff, right. and it's um, there are little bits like that that crop up that I couldn't help when I was watching it and watching the plot unfold. I started to like use those little tidbits that people had given out just completely randomly. Like there's no rhyme or reason to it, and and there's no reason for. It, uh, someone picking up the story five people later is going to use that little tidbit, but um, constructing my own narrative in my head of like, because there's a moment when uh, the boy, the, the mysterious object, the alien boy is what he turns out to be, takes over her body. Uh, but then both her, the original her and then the alien her are there together. And the first thing in my head was like, oh, they'll be able to find out because she's got the, you know, the mark on her neck or whatever. But of course that doesn't come up because nobody remembers that little tidbit. But it's just, it's just, you know, the nature of storytelling where you you kind of start to fill in gaps and pieces yourself. Um, and I actually want to talk about that scene in particular. What, what's great about um, his choices for people, for the, the people that are constructing the narrative, um, the storytellers, I guess that's a, <laughs> that's a word storytellers, um, is the different ways that they do it. And like I said, there's the, the, uh, deaf girls that are signing it and stuff, but in the middle, he's got this, uh, this group that li- we saw them listening to the tape of, of the narrative so far. And then they all kind of say, well, how do you want to go about this? And you're not sure what that entails, but then they act it out. Yeah. Uh, on a stage for an audience in a in a, like a park or whatever, um, and that's so cool and it's so exhilarating and 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 so the narrative is becoming uh, alive uh, in these people's lives and stuff and it's really cool. <laughs> it's cool to see. It is also cool to see the performances of these people who have not seen obviously the performances of the actors that are performing it later, um, and the guy that plays the kid in the wheelchair like he's all like he's kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is the opposite of what the kid is. Anyway, it, um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that he he uses uh, so many different kinds of, of narrators, and, and you kind of touched on this, but the, the, the kids, the, the deaf kids, there's, there's old women, there's, uh, there's poor guys, there's like young guys. It's like it's all aspects of society as opposed to just, you know, the, the dominant kinds of people who would normally be telling stories. And I think that's, uh, I think that's something that, that he'll, he'll kind of go on to do is like, uh, tell, tell stories about people that aren't, that don't normally get to tell stories. Yeah. People on the margins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that's clearly what he's going for here is, you know, he's not, he's not interviewing a bunch of people, uh, in Bangkok or whatever. He's going out to these, you know, yeah, very, well, like I, I mean, said, he, he is in Bangkok for, for some of it, but the very beginning, but yeah, but it's not like the, the high rollers in Bangkok. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a woman who was left there by her dad. Right. <laughs> like, Oh man. Well, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's street vendors and yeah. 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 So, um, but it's very good. Um, and then, and what's interesting then is the, the movie plays out, uh, and we get the credits and then we get another five minutes or so post credits. That is just documentary footage of these kids at a school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's the section that's called at noon. Um, so the movie's actually kind of a, it, it's kids that we've seen that we're telling a story earlier, but, um, 
it has this kind of tacked on little short film at the end of it um, that I didn't quite know what to make of at first. I was like, because you see the credits and you're, you know, once again, your mind kind of starts being like, okay, well, movie over. And then all of a sudden we get, you know, watching kids play soccer um, and these kids playing around with a dog and stuff. Um, and I actually, once again, going back to this little interview with him, he said that the final frame of the movie, which is the kids are playing with this dog and they tie a toy around its neck and the dog is like running around and kids are laughing like crazy or whatever. The final frame of the film is the final frame that the camera he filmed the whole movie with, uh, ever made because then it broke and he was (laughs) like, and so he was like, well, that's the end of the movie. So I think that la- final five minutes is just like the last five minutes he ever shot with the 16 millimeter camera. That was his first, you know, uh, camera. So that's because uh, I didn't quite know what to make of that at first. And I was, I was yeah, uh, I, did, I didn't uh, I didn't connect them as being separate. But I mean, knowing the rest of his work, he, he, they should be because he's he's constantly splitting his narratives up normally into into two sections and in some cases more than that. But it makes sense that there would be. I mean, it makes sense for him that there would be like an 80 minute film called Mysterious Object and then a five minute film called At Noon. And right. It'd just be smushed together. Why not? You know? Yeah. So. I mean, like in, like in Blissfully Yours, when he has the, the opening credit sequence, it comes 45 minutes into the movie just because they're, they're two separate movies and they're smushed together. Or, or Tropical Malady, which is two separate movies. Or, or Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives, which is one movie but it's told in like six different distinct six distinctly different narrative styles mm-hmm. so yeah I, I like that mysterious object and at noon at noon <laughs> <laughs> so all right well that's our discussion of mysterious object at noon uh we're gonna hear a little bit more music from uh we ethical films uh, yeah, this is that uh, aforementioned uh, credit sequence from Blissfully Yours, which is uh, a man and a woman driving in a car listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so like we said, uh, we're talking about a feature upon where ethical because uh, his latest movie, Cemetery of Splendor, is opening today as we record this at the uh, the Northwest Film Forum here. In- I'm sure it's doing boffo at the box office. <laughs> I'm sure it is, and uh, they're also playing along with it, which uh, it's actually over now. They did uh, uh, they played Mekong, Mekong Hotel which was his last feature uh, from 2012. Uh, they're playing two shows of that. They're playing one today, and then they're playing one more show on Thursday coming up next week. So if you're in the Seattle area, uh, definitely go see that. It's an hour long. It's uh, it's very cool. And it will, uh, I heard, be on the DVD for Cemetery Splendor when that comes out. It'll be like a little bonus feature. So nice. that's, that's a really cool movie. I really liked that one a lot. But there is other stuff playing in Seattle. Uh, so, Mike, my question is for you is what are you looking forward to on the Seattle screen scene in the next couple of weeks? Uh, well, the thing I'm most excited about um, is the arrival of Kurosawa's Ron, which is coming to SIF uh, March 25th through the 31st. Uh, our next show is going to be dedicated to Shakespeare. Um, and we're actually going to record that show the day after Ron plays. So, um, but there's a lot of Shakespeare going around in the city coming up here, and we'll we'll discuss that a little bit later. But uh, but I'm very excited about uh, Ron. I want to you know I've never seen it on the big screen. I've only, I, last time I saw it was uh, on a very very small TV, um, which is not the way to see that very uh, vibrant. Uh, yeah, it's epic. It's fantastic <laughs> on the big screen. I've seen it. I saw it at the Egyptian at least once. I feel like I've seen it twice, but uh, it's a great movie. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about it. I don't quite know. Uh, SIF is is uh, touting it as as uh, playing at the SIF Cinema Uptown on the giant screen, and mm-hmm. I I don't mm-hmm. know of a giant. I mean, they have a big. I mean, they have a, a decent sized auditorium, but I mean, no, they're they don't have a giant screen stretching, <laughs> stretching the definition there. Um, uh, it'll be a giant compared to the last time I saw it. I'll, I'll give them that. But uh, and uh, along with it, they're playing uh, Chris Marker's documentary on, on that he made about Kurosawa during the making of Ron, which is uh, which I've only seen parts of. But it's it's uh, it seemed pretty cool. Yeah. A.K. Yeah. Not not about the gun. No, it's, it's about Kurosawa. Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited about that. What about you, Sean? Uh, well, you actually uh, made my pick, so I'm you stole my pick. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with something else that's that's uh, that started last week at the Grand Illusion, and I think it's really cool. And I really wish I could go and see all these. It's uh, a Pioneers of African American Cinema series. Uh, they're doing. Uh, they're doing a couple of uh, Oscar Michaud films uh, this Sunday, uh, silent films, and then they're doing two more next week. And then uh, on April 3rd, they're doing a film from 1946, which uh, I think we should watch and, and talk about on the next episode, maybe. It's uh, called Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA, directed by Spencer Williams. Uh, so yeah, the, the, these are like... Uh, uh, African American cinema from the like silent and early studio era is stuff that never ever gets uh, talked about or discussed in most uh, film histories of American cinema, and uh, 
it's it's some interesting stuff and and definitely worth seeing. I don't know. Have you ever seen any like Oscar Me Show or anything like that? No, I I, I actually just went through. Um, God, what was this? Maybe a month or two ago. Um, the library we're doing uh, our second annual African American film series is coming up in May. It's going to run into into June, and so I was looking for a title or two to play uh, the branch that I work at, and, and and actually went down the rabbit hole and and saw all of that stuff the oscar me show stuff uh, i didn't watch it but i saw lists with those titles on it and uh, i basically just if if anybody looks at my watch list on letterboxd i think the first 20 uh th- films now are going to be all all kind of fall in that vein so that's something i'm really interested in uh for sure yeah when i when i was at the university of washington the uh the film history professor for for this era, this kind of studio era, is uh, is really good. A guy named uh, Stephen Shaviro, who's uh, kind of well known on on the internet at least now. Um, and he he showed us a he went out of his way to show us an Oscar Michaud film, and that is not something that I think that most uh, film history classes would do. So yeah, yeah, it's really uh, cool. Yeah, it's, but it's definitely stuff that I need to watch more of. So. Yes. Yeah, I yes. think, and and especially since once for nineteen forty six, and that's our year. I think we we should definitely watch this movie for the next episode. For the next episode, yeah, it's like an hour oh. long. Sure, because it's it's playing on April third, and we can talk about it a little bit. Right, that works for me. Okay. Cool. <laughs> uh, so, other than that, uh, uh, what you been watching? <laughs> well, we spoiled it in the beginning, yeah. but. Uh, the new Terrence Malick film, his seventh feature, uh, Night of Cups, is out. It's is it still playing in Seattle? It's um, it opened on two screens. It's now playing on one screen. Okay, all right. It's still at the uh, Seven Gables. All right. Uh, yeah, it's the new Malick, um, and it's it's funny to be in this it, this period now where, you know, when when Malick came back in '98. Um, and running up and well, actually, New World just came and went. Nobody noticed it. But you know, there was always this like groundswell of like the new Malik's coming, the new Malik's coming. Well, we, like... we we noticed New World. Well, I know we noticed. I'm just <laughs> saying, I'm just saying with uh, To the Wonder uh, and Knight of Cups now, you know, there was that big hoopla with Tree of Life. You know, yeah. um, I mean that 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 one crossed over, so to speak. And now Malik has really. Uh, kind of gone back into the shadows a little bit i mean obviously yeah cinephiles are obviously always going to go see the new malik but um it really feels like knight of cups is is going to go uh quietly into the night <laughs> yeah it's 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 suffering the same fate that that to the wonder did and yes. i think it was delayed even longer wasn't it or i guess they both kind of premiered at fall festivals and then and then didn't. Yeah, come I out think they that. came. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think To the Wonder premiered at the fall festivals, but uh, Night of Cups premiered over a year ago at Berlin, and yeah. is only now getting released in the U.S. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know, before we got, get too into it, uh, I do want to lead with the the caveat that, uh, especially the the more recent Malik films, um, but it's kind of borne out throughout his uh, career for me is. I always tend to respond better to his films uh, on rewatch. Um, the only one I've loved on it, well, Tree of Life as well, but The New World's the only one I loved 
unequivocally from the first time I saw it and love it now the you know twelfth time I've seen it. To the Wonder was one that I was really excited about, obviously. Uh, and then I, I came out of it, you know, happy that there was a new Malik in the world, but not too. I, know, I wasn't like over the moon for it. Um, and then I rewatched it like a year later and was like, holy crap, <laughs> I'm an idiot. This movie's amazing. Uh, I, I mean, I, it's not in new world category for me or anything like that. But um, so, so I went to the press screening of Knight of Cups and I had a pretty similar experience. Um, you know, I can watch Malik, you know, do whatever and I'll be happy. Um, I think I, I, I'm, I'm really happy that he's actually kind of the, the expectations are kind of off him now and he can just kind of play in his corner of the sandbox uh, and just work his way through, you know, the stuff he's been going through. Um, but, but that being said, I also didn't embrace Knight of Cups uh, like I would maybe have liked to on, on my first watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, uh, I had a very similar reaction to as as to to the wonder. Uh, I, I like them both quite a bit, but uh, I'm not in the same way that I liked uh, the Thin Red Line and the New World right away. And I think, you know, I, I've I've noticed that I haven't rewatched any of his last three films. Mm. And I, Interesting. Know, I I loved to the lot to to I loved uh, <laughs> Tree of Life when I, when I saw it. It's it's like my favorite film of that year. I own the Blu-ray, but I've never sat down to watch it, and I'm not exactly sure why. It kind of takes its toll emotionally. <laughs> yeah, and 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 partially, I'm like I'm afraid that I'm not going to like it as much as I did mm. the first time, and I want to kind of keep that that like experience that I had the first time I saw it. I get that. I for me, Tree of Life. I I'm I have the Blu-ray as well. I have not watched it at home. Uh, I saw it twice in the theater, and that movie is really interesting because. I think based on those two experiences, that's a movie that I think will work again um, because there were moments in the first time I saw it that just floored me. And I was, and I was like, you know, puddle of tears. And I was just like, I mean, it's just a mess. Um, and then the second time I saw it, I was geared up for those moments. So I was kind of, you know, ready for it. Um, but then it would be another moment that I hadn't even like given a passing glance the first time that was like that came out of the blue and just punched me in the gut. Um, and that movie, I, yeah, that movie is fantastic. And, and to the wonder I think is really underrated. Um, and, and like I said, it wasn't until I rewatched it on video that I, I kind of came around on it. And I, it's one that I actually really want to revisit for a third time. Um, because I think there's a lot of interesting ideas going on in there. And so, but my problem with night of cups is that, there isn't that I, I never get to that emotional core with that with that film. Um, I think it, I think in a lot of ways, and if we want to get, kind of get into the specifics of, of the movie, I think it's it's a victim of its own conception in that it's a movie about emotional disconnection that is emotionally disconnected. 
Right. That's yeah, absolutely. Like the the central crisis of Christian Bale's character, who is you know handsome, uh, very successful, sleeps with a lot of very pretty people. Um, but yeah, but he but he's but he's not he's not relating to anybody, whether it's you know a romantic partner or, or family on any sort of uh, real level. Right. But, well, it and yeah. And then, but yeah, and so when when it finally gets to the end, and there, I mean, the movie kind of thinks it resolves itself. I mean, he's at some sort of peace at the end, but I never felt that. Well, uh, I got, I have two thoughts. Uh, the the first is is one of the things I really like about the movie is is the way it doesn't build to anything. Like it, it just it it just completely deny, denies any expectation of narrative momentum that we have that something will build to a crisis point and then resolve. It just keeps going at the same level and then it stops. And I I like that. I think I think it's like really daring to make a movie like that with no kind of cathartic moment in it. Whereas I think the the Tree of Life did like the tree of life is like one long buildup that's kind of right. its, its whole well and the fucking conception. new world i mean the yeah. last the, I, I i the last five minutes of the new world i like if i just think about it <laughs> i just start crying like it's 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 like it's that effective um and i know what you're saying and and that's one of the reasons that i might want to that i do want to rewatch it is that if i go into it with that kind of mindset or i know where it's going uh, meaning it's not going anywhere. Um, I might be able to to appreciate it for well, that. Well, right, and and that's kind of what I mean by like being a, a victim of it of its conception is that is that I like that idea in theory, but it doesn't make the movie any more fun to watch. Right. <laughs> it's like I like I appreciate it, but I'm like, uh, okay, there's another pretty woman who Christian Bale can't connect with, and then and then the other thing which is. Uh, the fact that he is surrounded by all of this material wealth and everything that he like comes in contact with is absolutely gorgeous. The things, the the people, you know, everything is so ridiculously beautiful, and none of it satisfies him. is is kind of infuriating for those of us <laughs> who aren't surrounded by by Kate Blanchett and Natalie Portman and and you know Antonio Banderas. But on the other hand, I mean, that is the point of the movie. That right, even, even, even all of these like material and, and sexual aspirations that we have are not fulfilling. You right, know, like you're he, never he going to be find something else. And it has to be like absurdly over the top, materially perfect in order for Malik to make the point that he's, that he's going after. Like it, it doesn't matter how, you know, fabulously wealthy and, and cool you are you're not going to be happy if like there's still like this gap inside of you where you blame yourself for your brother's suicide. Right. Yes. Which is, uh, which leads to like another really interesting thing that I, I did not, uh, I did not expect in the film, but I probably should have is that it's really a sequel to the tree of life. Yeah. I, 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 I caught onto that as well. Uh, it, you know, these, these, I called them in in my review of this. I, I called the the most recent films, the the three films, Tree of Life, To the Wonder, and Night of Cups. Um, I called them personal films because the you know the stories are 
you know, they're not based on a James Jones novel. They're not, you know, uh, the apocryphal kind of. They're um, they're know. all autobiographical. Right. They're all, yeah. They're all autobiographical um, to some extent or another, and uh, and so yeah, you're you're going to see elements that play out um, in all three, um, and they kind of overlap. And yeah, it's it's interesting to see the 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 kind of the the signposts that you get from other movies, um, because you know, to the wonder is kind of also dealing with the the emotional crisis um, at the center of this one. Well, well, uh, to, to to the wonder is autobiographical, but it's like from a much later point in Malik's life, right? Um, uh, like it's uh uh. uh and it's it's more fictionalized. Like the the Ben Affleck character is not directly analogous to to Terrence Malick. Like it, it's based on Ter- Terrence Malick, and he had these like two relationships that he was juggling. Um, but his character is he's like an environmentalist or environmental right. surveyor or something. So it's not like he's as a screenwriter. Yeah, it's not as direct as uh, Knight of Cups and, and Tree of Life are. And there's not like the same family issues that that are like the key issues in in the other two movies, right? Um, what one and one of the things that another problem I don't want to say problem, but another thing that kind of left me underwhelmed with Knight of Cups was that um, in in both Tree of Life and in uh, To the Wonder, there are also these kind of I don't want to say B stories, but you know, they kind of run on multiple tracks at once. Cause uh, tree of life obviously hops back between the fifties and present day with Sean Penn um, reflecting on, on his childhood and stuff. So you've got those kind of two uh, worlds plus, in, and then also like the creation of the universe, <laughs> um, which and, is and, its whole like separate prologue, which is, yeah. Uh, and then into the wonder, you've got the really fascinating, uh, what I think is the real heart of the movie is the Javier Bardem uh, priest character who goes out into, you know, these very poor communities and, and tries to, you know, make a connection with people and stuff. And Knight of Cups doesn't really, I mean, I, I guess you could say the two tracks are the romantic and the, you know, family relationships that Christian Bale's character has, but there's not really any breathing room from any of that stuff. Um, right. Cause it, it's all, it's all taking taking place inside Christian Bale's head. Like it's, it's, it's all, all hermetic. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. And that being said, you know, I think it's, I think it's good. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like throwing it under the bus. Like I, I think, um, it's, it's gorgeous. I think there are some really astounding moments in the film. Um, I think the Natalie Portman section is really cool. Um, and, and, uh, it's, I wish it's like the best work she's done in years. Yeah, it's she's really good. Like she's, I think the best in the movie. I really think she is. Um, I think the the Australian woman who plays the uh, the stripper. stripper. I, think, I think I think she's <laughs> I think she's really good. Going for the stripper, eh? <laughs> uh, she's she's one of like the few performances that like really feels lively and alive. Like right. like everyone else is kind of touched by by Christian Bale's emotional. Torp, uh, torpor, but like uh, uh, Brian Dennehy. <laughs> yeah, I like I like Brian Dennehy. I love Brian Dennehy. I think I think it's very uh, happy. That Brian Kate Blanchett is great. Imogene uh, Poots is great. Yeah, um, one of the great yeah, names in in film history. Absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm interested to see it again. And 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 like I said in the intro of the show, I wasn't really 
being facetious when I said I can kind of just watch Malik on a loop. Like, um, and I, and I think it's a movie that I'll be able to, um, find new and exciting ideas in, you know, later on down the line, but it's probably my least favorite Terrence Malick movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a movie that if I was young and had parties, I would like turn on with the sound off when I had a party. (laughs) <laughs> and just like when other people are like talking to other people i just kind of like sit on the couch and and drink right and, and watch the movie. <laughs> um i did i did like malik um uh to the wonder is very small scale in terms of its production like it mostly it's shot like in uh you know oklahoma um parking lots and like you know prefab homes and stuff um and it was cool to see him do these kind of bigger scenes in this movie there's the scene of uh, the earthquake uh which was really visceral and, and and you know even at one point i was like did they just happen to be filming when an earthquake <laughs> um because it seemed like one of those happy accidents that terrence malick would you know stumble upon um right. you know so that was pretty cool to see that kind of stuff um yeah, I think I, I liked it. I liked it less than To the Wonder. I think there was there was nothing in it like uh, Olga Kurylenko's performance for me to like really kind of grasp on to. And I think I think she's really good in Into the Wonder. And while I think there's a lot of really good performances in this, none of them were were that. Uh, uh, engrossing for me yeah but but uh i will i will take uh bale over affleck uh and that's not just in batman movies but uh i i i my first time watching to the wonder uh affleck was my problem he's not a problem the second time he's it, it his performance is I think I think they're both fine. I mean, there's there's nothing for them to do because the the whole point is that they they don't do anything. They don't talk. They don't. They just kind of wander around and and refuse to connect with the other actors. Right, but I think Bale understands that a little better than Affleck. There are moments in Two the Wonder sure. where Affleck Affleck really looks like I have no idea what I'm doing in this moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm supposed to be acting now. This is my acting face. Right. Like the Affleck's got a couple of those moments in that, but Bale, Bale commits to that uh, kind of nothingness uh, a little better. So, yeah. And I think, I think it's just that, that Kurlenko is, 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 is in so much more of to the wonder. And it's really, it's really more a movie about her than it is about, about him. Uh, yeah. I just, yeah. I really like her, her performance in that. And she hasn't done anything since that I know of. So wasn't she in a bond movie? Yeah, probably. I don't know. I'm going to watch those. <laughs> Neither do I. Uh, so, yeah. So, that's what I've been watching. Um, I'm actually... We're we're in screen-free month right now. Um, had to... How is that what's get, going on? That's what's going on. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm reading a bunch of books. Uh, I have, like, all this time. It's on my hands. It's, like, kind of amazing. Um so that's what's been going on. And so the only stuff I've watched is for this uh, show or for the website. Um, so it's kind of interesting. But so, Weird. yes. Uh, so a peach at Pong, where it's ethical, is a film director. He is. Uh, he directed a movie called Mysterious Object at Noon, which we talked about about 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's 
yeah, we're gonna talk. We're gonna we're gonna pick our essential here. Um, as we said earlier in the show, you've seen all of the features uh, and a lot of the shorts, um, mm-hmm. and you binged on a lot of that this week. Uh, I partly because of the screen free month uh, did not have that opportunity. I have seen uh, Uncle Boon Me and obviously Mysterious Object at Noon and the new one, Cemetery of Splendor. And I really like them all. I really do. They're really, um, he's a really distinctive voice. And, I, and I'm, I'm really glad that he's um, recognized as such and that he's getting, you know, the opportunity to, to make these very personal, um, you know, forms of expression that his movies are. Because, they, you know, no one really makes them like that. Um, so anyway, but. I kind of think Mysterious Object at Noon might be my favorite. Like I, re- I was really intrigued with the concept of it, the execution, the 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 multiple as we were talking about during the um, discussion there, uh, the multiple planes of uh, thought that are going into it, and and the way you can read the film on a number of different levels, um, narratively, I think is really really cool. Um, and and I'm always a sucker for. I think I talked about this on the last show, or I don't remember why I would have, but um, oh, I think it was with David Lynch, where I, I love when directors come out with something that is kind of fully formed. Like, it it, it, it doesn't have any real uh, precedent. You know, it, it really feels like in a Peter Pong where it's ethical film. Uh, yeah. And and I like that. Um, and I and I and I applaud that. So I'm I'm gonna go with mysterious object of noon is my essential. Uh, we're ethical. It's 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 not it's not a bad pick. Uh, <laughs> you you haven't seen my two favorite of his films. I know. I really need to see syndromes in a century. Um, that one I'm really kicking myself. Yeah, syndromes in a century and and tropical malady. Uh, tropical malady has long been my favorite. It was the first one I saw, and it it remains my favorite. Uh, Syndromes is one that uh, when I when I rewatched it this week, I liked it a lot more than I did the first time. Um, and this is actually the first time I'd, I'd rewatched any of them. All of, all of the I'd seen all the features about Mysterious Object before, but I'd only seen them once. So watching them again is, as I'm sure you can imagine, really really rewarding. Mm-hmm because his movies are so idiosyncratic and so hard to predict because they're they are crazy they do stuff that you would not expect a movie to do a tropical tropical melody is a typical kind of uh uh slow cinema love story between these these two guys a, a soldier and a guy who works in an ice factory and they like slowly get to know each other they spend like an afternoon in the park they meet some old ladies who uh, show them around a, an ancient cave, and then halfway through the movie, it becomes a story about the soldier uh, tracking a tiger through the jungle, and then in turn being tracked by that tiger, who is uh, actually a ghost, who might be the spirit of the guy that he was dating in the first half of the movie. It's unclear. Uh, and Syndromes in a Century is is similarly. It's a, the story of uh, of two doctors. Who meet in a rural hospital, uh, and some of the the kind of characters around that hospital, and it's a it's kind of a romance. It's it's uh, it's it's very mellow, and then halfway through, 
the story kind of repeats itself, but in a more urban setting. And you see all of these, these personal connections that were built in the first half, a lot of them aren't possible in the second half in the more uh, mechanical environment. Uh, so yeah, it's just these these narratives that kind of that kind of mirror and, and fold upon each other become much more even more resonant when you watch them again, knowing how they're going to to twist in the second half of the film. So which is your essential? Uh, Tropical Malady is my essential. Okay. It's uh, <laughs> It's it's I my thought you were cheating there for a second. No, it, it's 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 my favorite of of his movies. It's it is I think the essential one. Um but they're they're all so good. He's such like you said, he's such an idiosyncratic filmmaker and I I just I love I love his movies so much. Like all okay. of all of his features I gave like five stars. <laughs> um yeah, uh it's really funny because his his style that that uh, very you know that trademark style of his extends even so far out to uh his posters and stuff like uh my girlfriend and i went to scarecrow the other day uh and they have a poster for cemetery of splendor and it kind of stopped her in her tracks when we were walking in and she was looking up at it um and and just kind of absorbing it, and 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 I was like, oh yeah, that's the new, you know, we're ethical. And she'd seen Uncle Boon Me, and she was like, I, you know, the reason it stopped me is because I was like, that really looks, <laughs> that that image, just the image alone, reminds me of Uncle Boon Me and and stuff. And um, and I do want to, I want to give a shout out to Cemetery of Splendor too, because that movie's really solid. Um, it it's it's definitely um. A great, great, a great performance at its center, um, and just some more good stuff from uh, Where's Ethical. So, yeah, and 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 watching watching all the movies again, in or just watching them in a short period of time, you you see uh, the actors and the characters repeating, and all of the the different connections between the films. Because I, I think uh, he has like a little interview on the Uncle Boon Me Blu-ray. Where he talks about like he he consciously connects all of his films because he wants to have created this universe where all of the movies uh, kind of connect and cross reference each other. Maybe not in like a coherent logical uh, like a, a Star Wars universe kind of way, but in a in an associational sense. So uh, the actress who's in uh, Cemetery of Splendor is in all of his features from Blissfully Yours On, I believe. She might not be in Tropical Malady, but but uh, Jinjira Pongpass is. She's so good. Yeah, and she she starts out great in Blissfully Yours, but she she gets, she's I think she might even be better in Cemetery of Splendor. Like it's, and maybe it's just because I have like uh, like fifteen years of, of of film history with her as an actress, but she carries all of that weight into the later films. And it, it's weird. You see her. You see her change. Like in, when she's in Blissfully Yours, she hasn't had the motorcycle accident where uh, one leg ends up being shorter than the other. Mm-hmm. But then when you meet her in uh, one of the the later films, she talks. I think it's in Syndromes in a Century. She talks about how she had this motorcycle accident, and you see, you can actually like see her leg getting shorter as the movies go on. Yeah, as she keeps having surgeries and and keeps losing bits of her leg. Uh, 
Yeah, she's terrific. And and the the actor who plays the the soldier it in Cemetery of Splendor is the same actor uh in Tropical Malady, although he's playing a character with a different name. But his boyfriend in Tropical Malady returns in Uncle Boon Me uh as the same character. So the the movies are all like taking place in this one universe where uh where weird shit happens <laughs> and like I, I think of of where Seth Gull as uh kind of this the filmmaker where uh kind of the boundary lines that we typically draw to to describe our reality don't exist like there there's no difference between between being awake and being asleep between myth and 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 fact between between the past and the present he just kind of erases all of those and sees what happens which isn't quite surrealism, but you can see the the connection with that in in mysterious object, and you see like the inklings of that in the, in in that film where he mixes up the the different narratives with the documentary reality. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any other Thai filmmakers? Uh, I mean, we talked about Wissit Sassanatiang on uh, one of the, I think, the second show of uh, the yeah, old one, podcast. One, one of uh, the, the very early ones. And I think we might have actually talked about A Peach of Longwear's Ethical on that show, too. Yeah. Um, but uh, other uh, than that, I don't think I've seen any uh, of them. Other than that, there's uh, uh, Penek Retnar, Retnar Ruong. Uh, who I've seen uh, a handful. I just of asked. Movies. I just asked you that question so that you would garble a bunch of <laughs> Thai names. That's why I said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Penek Ratnarawong uh, directed a film called Last Life in the Universe uh, from I think 2004 uh, that has cinematography by uh, Christopher Doyle and stars a Japanese actor named Tadnabo Asano, uh, Asano who is uh, who's very very good and. I love that movie a lot. Yeah, you've mentioned that one. Yeah, and uh, I've seen a couple others of his movies, and they are not—they are not that good. Um, I mean, they're not as good as that one. They're still perfectly fine. Um, but yeah, not, neither of those guys, neither uh, uh, was it or, or Retinaro Wong or anything like a Peach Pong Where's Ethical. He's much, yeah. much more in the vein of like like Chiming Leong or or Ho Shin. Uh, in his in his approach than they are who are more kind of typical mainstream or genre right experimental stylists yeah yeah Yeah. definitely well cool well uh speaking of surrealist as you were just saying uh let's hear a clip let's take a break and hear a little clip from uh, gates of the night Chantier, 
Un musicien ambulant venait parfois jouer cette valse. Et je me rappelle, avec les autres petites filles du quartier, nous apprenions à danser. Ici, dans ce chantier Oui, ici. Dans ce chantier, j'ai dansé pour la première fois. Vous pourriez aussi, si vous vouliez, danser ce soir pour la première fois, avec moi. So, Mike, have you seen Children of Paradise? Shut up, Sean. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a no. No, uh, I, I, I've had it at home a couple of times, and I just haven't gotten around to it. I know it's like the best movie ever. It's, I'm it's a like, horrible person. It's like one of the best movies ever. Uh, it came out in 1945. Uh, it was made under the German occupation, uh, somewhat controversially. Its star was uh, had an affair with a German officer and was basically chased out of the French film industry. Um, but it's really good. And it was followed up a year later in 1946 with the same uh, director and the same uh, screenwriter with uh, Gates of the Night or Les Portes de la Nuit. <laughs> Which we're going to call Gates, you... of, Gates of the Night because we're really bad at French. Uh, and it stars, uh, speaking of being bad at French, it stars Yves Montand. There you go. Uh, and uh, it's like his first, uh, is it his first film role? Is it first major, second. Second film role? His first major film role. And it is not really like Children of Paradise at all in most respects. Uh, it takes place over the course of one night. And it's a, it's a kind of network narrative where uh, uh, Montan plays a, a veteran of the French resistance who has come home uh, ostensibly to tell a woman that her husband has been killed, but it turns out that he's not. He's just been living at home for the last several months. And uh, so he hangs out with them for a while. He meets their upstairs neighbors. Uh, and he falls in love with a beautiful woman who happens to be married, and her she's the daughter of the landlord of the... Uh, Here's where we go off the rails. ...of all of the people, and the landlord's son was a collaborator with the Nazis, 
and it all ends tragically. And there's a weird homeless guy who may or may not be the personification of the god of destiny. Mystical hobo. Uh, who keeps trying to warn people but failing because humans are fated to tragedy. So it is, uh, it is not especially surreal. Like if you're looking for the connection between this and Mysterious Object at Noon, I, I don't know that you're going to find much. I think, uh, I think Prevert's screenplay is very good. And then a lot of his dialogue has kind of surrealist inflections in that it is not, it's not strictly realist. It's very, it's very stylized in, but in a more like conventional romantic movie kind of way. Uh, it reminded me at times of like uh, the Manchurian Candidate, the romantic, the kind of screwball romantic uh, dialogue in that, but much more kind of French and romantic. I don't yeah, know. I, 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 the the connection I would make with Mysterious Object at Noon is is just the idea of narrative because nar narrative the narrative structure is so on display in this like you said it, it's 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 a real written movie and and the and the interlocking pieces of all of these relationships while of course the end product is you know the only the only thing that connects the two movies are that they're movies basically but but they're both kind of obsessed with uh storytelling and 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 just kind of smashing these things together and and it is really interesting how uh, the needle is threaded here with uh, bringing these characters in and, and having these, you know, tangential relationships that, you know, affect one another and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminded me more than even Children of Paradise, which does have a similarly kind of connected narrative, but it's much more... Children of Paradise is just a much more ambitious film. Like, it, it takes place over like a long stretch of time. It's like a lifetime of romantic tragedy as opposed to like one night. Um, this reminded me a lot of uh, the rules of the game. And I got like a really strong uh, Jean Renoir vibe out of it. Uh, more, more even than, than children of paradise or uh, the other Marcel Carnet film that I've seen that I can't remember the title of, uh, uh, Le Jour C'est Love from 1939. Um, Hmm. And, and eh, I don't know if I'd I don't know if I'd see it. The I don't know if I see the Renoir. Uh, and and uh, well, partially it's from the uh, the guy who is the the upstairs neighbor who has fifteen kids. Uh, he is in uh, Julian Corette. He is in. He's one of the main characters in Rules of the Game. So maybe, and also uh, uh, Grand Illusion. So maybe just seeing him makes me think of Renoir. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that but, maybe. But the way that all of like the relationships interconnect in in rules of the game uh, reminded me of this film as as like rules of the game is like the pre-war version of this story. Whereas like we've we've talked about a number of nineteen forty six uh, films already this year, but this is the first one to be explicitly about the war and the aftermath of the war. Well, and this and this pointedly takes place. The war ain't over during the time that this is right. It takes place in February nineteen forty-five. So Paris has been liberated, but the war is still ongoing. Right. So yeah, the war is is clearly the shadow of it is is cast over everything. Um, and obviously, it gets in like you said with the resistance and all of that into actual plot specifics as well. So yeah. 
Um, but for me, the problem with this movie, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying with the uh, Knight of Cups thing, is that it, its basic conceit is also kind of its downfall. Like, the, the fact that it is so... Uh, this this hand of fate or whatever that's controlling all of this stuff um, and and the glimpses we get from the the warnings that are given out by the mystical hobo um, destiny <laughs> I call destiny mystical hobo um, <laughs> are also what what kind of keep me at a distance from the whole thing like I, I can't really connect with it when it obviously any movie the plot is written in advance for the most part and it's all going to places but the fact that this is so spelled out and so schematic in it in it, in it uh the way it plays out um is, is one of the reasons i can't really embrace it's fine but i can't embrace it um as much as maybe i would like to i know i think i think the the heart of the movie is the the romantic relationship between uh between eve montand and and this uh uh blonde woman named malu and uh, like the the key scene for me, and, the, and the, the one that really makes the movie for me and makes me really, really like this movie is when they're. That's a, a car. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when they first meet, and there's like an instant attraction between the two of them, but then as they're talking, they begin to realize that they've almost met each other time and time again throughout their past as if they've like been destined to come together. And it's, I, I, that whole sequence, it's like 20 minutes. It seems like in the, in the center of this film uh, is, I think it's just really, really beautiful and really well performed by, by the actors. And I mean, it makes everything else work for me. Uh, I, I, I really like that section too. I love 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 it's it's fantastic the the shot um of when he first sees her when they're in the the courtyard or the 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 yard of the apartment building uh -huh. uh, and he sees her in the reflection yep. of, of a mirror um and it and it's very mystical and uh and otherworldly and it's happening at like three in the morning or whatever and you think it might be an apparition too or whatever and then he turns around and and she look in the mirror she looks further away so when he turns around she's like right next to him um and that's a that's a phenomenal shot and i think that's really really great i think my problem is uh kind of superficial uh her eyebrows really distracted me <laughs> I couldn't get into it. Uh, I actually was much more interested in the, uh, which is unfortunately kind of pushed completely aside. There's the uh, the oldest daughter of the uh, of the guy from Rules of the Game uh, that has 15 kids, and she sells croissants at the uh, the metro station, and she goes off on this little love affair of her own that evening with this you know this kind of latchkey guy uh well and I, I really i like those kids man I, I was into the kids you know uh more so than the uh well i i, I really like how that how that storyline is is pushed to the side how how it's going on while all of this like growing up tragedy by these people who have been like destroyed by the war is happening there's still this youth that has grown up during the war but hasn't been uh, affected by it in the same way as the people that fought in it were. 
Right. Uh, well, yeah, and, and it, it's obviously meant as a duality because the the final line of the movie, uh, you know, uh, is is the father saying, you know, something like "love." It's so frivolous, or something, or something like that. Right. You know? um, so. Yeah, and and you know that they, they are also brought together by by destiny in like this. Oh yeah, this really charming scene where the guy like uh, like tricks the the boy into putting his uh, into holding hands with the girl. It's it's very neat. Well, I got to say, you know, destiny destiny keeps complaining about you know people's reaction to him, but you know the first thing he does, first thing he does is he approaches. Uh, dude on the subway and he's like are you getting off at this stop and the guy's like who the who the hell are you you know and he's like i'm getting off here too and it's like get away from me you creepy mystical hobo and then and then you know what destiny does not follow the rules of propriety it does what it will (laughs) and then he grabs the boy's hair touches the boy's hand and the boy's like all freaked out and um so yeah i know i mean it's fine it's it's totally fine i just i um the the fact that they were all resigned to their fate made it a little less uh, I don't know emotional for me when uh, bad stuff started happening, which yeah, I think and, is kind of the point. But it, right. but at the same time, it doesn't that didn't intrigue me enough on an intellectual level or anything. Uh, but whatever, it's fine. Yeah. It's totally fine. <laughs> I I don't know. I think I think it's uh, I think it's, I think it's really really. Uh, I think it's a lovely movie. I, I, it's it's very it's very romantic, and it's got a great song in it. Like I, I really love Autumn Leaves, and and that song comes from this movie, which I did not know. Yeah, I, I didn't know that either. Um, that was that was pretty interesting, and uh, I and I like. I mean, yeah, I I guess I I like some of the like I want to spend more times with more time with certain characters than others. Um, and and maybe the ratio for me wasn't as um, as perfect as it as it could have been the balance of that stuff. But yeah. but I, there, I, I would have I would have liked to spend more time with uh, with Sylvie Bataille who plays the the housewife. Um, yeah, right. Uh, and she's from uh, uh, another uh, Renoir connection. She's from Day in the Country. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, and she she basically has like the one scene where she's like, uh, "My husband's not dead; he was just at work." Um, <laughs> and then that's basically it. She she never really appears again. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Little things like that. But uh, you know, I can't complain. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I don't know. This this kind of doomed romanticism is is uh, is something that's in all of the. Uh, the, the the three Marcel Carnet films that I've seen they're all very they're all very tragic and you all you know it's going to end badly all the time uh, so maybe that's just uh, Carnet and Prevert that's that's their thing and I can I can I can hang with that for a while <laughs> I, think, I think it's I think it's fine uh, it's it's different it is different than Renoir who was much more even even though rules of the game ends in tragedy it's a much more kind of positive in its view of the world than this one there seems to be a little bit more uh, humanity or i, I something to it i mean uh, i mean i can't put my finger quite on it but uh 
Yeah, like every everyone Renoir movie is is alive. All of the people yeah. are that you would never accuse a Renoir film of of reducing people to uh, iconographic stereotypes like destiny or or fate, uh, like uh, like Prevere and Carnet do in this film. Right, right. But it's good. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want to hear Autumn Leaves or are you going to play some more We're Ethical here? Uh, we're going to play some more We're Ethical here because uh, we played Autumn Leaves as the clip for this. Oh, we did? I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. You should pay attention. <laughs> uh, we're going to listen to, uh, this is a, a duet that comes in the, the middle of Tropical Malady because it's romantic and this movie is also romantic. That's it for this episode of The Francis Farmer Show. Uh, as we teased earlier uh, in the program, the next show, which will be coming out early April, um, is tying in with... There's a lot of Shakespeare hit in Seattle. Um, the Seattle Public Library, uh, who I work for. <laughs> um, you know, I got to lay it on the table, you know, journalistic standards here. Yeah. Um, you know... <laughs> Full disclosure, people. For the first time ever. Um, The Seattle Public Library is getting uh, Shakespeare's first folio and will be uh, showing it off at the Central Library for a month. And it's the only time, uh, only place in Washington State that's going to have it. It's touring the world right now. Um, 
but uh, but it'll be uh, to Seattle Public Library for about a month, um, and there's all kinds of folio related activities going on, including um, Seattle Public Library is going to be running a bunch of uh, films. Uh, my branch uh, will be running Orson Welles' Macbeth. Um, which I'm really excited about, even though I'm not actually going to be there to watch it <laughs> because I got roped into doing something else. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then we talked about Ron uh, coming to SIF and all that. So we decided we're going to talk about some Shakespeare adaptations or loose adaptations, I guess, in a way. Um, so, Sean, you want to set up the two films that we'll be discussing uh, next time? Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, uh, Peter Greenaway's 1991 uh, riff on The Tempest, uh, Prospero's Books. And along with that, uh, Matthias Pinheiro's The Princess of France from 2014, which is uh, kind of loosely about an adaptation of Love's Labor's Lost. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. These are both... Uh, movies that I haven't seen. So, yeah. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I love the Tempest. I think the Tempest is one of my f- absolute favorite, um, Shakespeare plays. And so I'm, I'm interested in seeing, seeing that film, uh, I, I in particular, have, I have not read it yet, but I am looking forward to reading it before I watch this movie. It's really good. I really like it. Um, so yeah, so there's that. Um, and meanwhile, Elsewhere, outside of Seattle, um, down in San Francisco, Castro Theater, I talk about them all the time, but they're doing a a one night only, this is really cool, triple feature, Wednesday, March 30th, the the, uh, program's called Hollywood Before the Code, Sex, Crime, Horror, and what they're showing is on all on 35 millimeter. Oh wait, horror or whore? Horror, horror. You you heard what you wanted to hear. Uh, all on 35 millimeter, starting at 6.15, they're running Island of Lost Souls, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 31, and Todd Browning's Freaks. And uh, that sounds like a hell of a night at the movies. Uh, I, I haven't seen the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but Island of Lost Souls, great performance from Charles Lawton. Freaks is is just one of the greatest movies. Uh, I absolutely adore it, and I love the I love the fact that those two movies uh, they have a little bit of musical trivia related to them. Uh, Devo, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, got, you know, are we not men from Island of Lost Souls? And uh, the Ramones, uh, they they changed it. Gobble gobble, you know, one of us gobble 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 uh, became gobble gobble hey in their song uh, Pinhead. So. Uh, I love Devo, I love the Ramones, and I love uh, 1930s horror movies. That that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is really good as well. It's uh, it's even better than Island of Lost Souls. I don't know if it's as good as Freaks, but uh, that's Ruben Mamoulian. And uh, back when I wrote about Hollywood movies on my website, which was a very long time ago, uh, I wrote about that one. It's, there you uh, go. It's terrific. Uh, so this this is what's going on at the Tate Modern on Saturday, April 9th, and and you'll like this. Uh, Starting at 10 o'clock at night, they are running 14 straight hours of a Pichapong Weiras ethical movies. (laughs) They're doing all of the features, a whole bunch of shorts, and there's ads, and it's like the admission for this, the whole 14-hour show, only 15 pounds. Wow. And basically, you can go in, you can go in at any time, uh, 
you don't have to be there for the whole 14 hours. You can show up at uh, 3.50 in the morning to catch Blissfully Yours if you want. Uh, it's uh, It looks like an amazing program. Uh, when it was announced on Twitter, uh, Peachbong, uh, where Seth Cole himself uh, tweeted it out and said, I'm pretty sure I could not stay awake for all of this. <laughs> so it's it's a challenge. <laughs> Because he is, he is a filmmaker of, of sleep and of dreams and of the, the states in between them. And I can think of no better way to watch them than attempting and failing to stay awake in an auditorium while watching them. So Yeah, that is a really genius idea. I do yeah. I do appreciate that. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can find out about us and the show and all kinds of movie-related stuff at seattlescreenscene.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Seattle screen, uh, and we also have Seattle screen at gmail.com. If you want to send us, uh, an email telling us, you know, what your favorite we're a Sethical movie is, <laughs> so, uh, or, or, you know, if you want to harangue Mike for not having seen children of paradise, right. You know, whatever. <laughs> well, well, there's, there's the separate Mike hate mail at gmail.com uh, <laughs> that we, we get all that stuff there too. So, uh, but yeah, until next time, uh, here's some more music stolen from weird ethical movies. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, the last song from Cemetery of Splendor and it's got a little, uh, a neat little poem recited over it. Thank you.